So good morning, Four Corners. I trust, I hope, that you are excited to be with God's people today. You know, it's, a, it's amazing to me how when we come together for worship, there is uh, this, this great uh, relationship between the vertical and the horizontal, that we're so excited to come and worship God, that's the vertical, but we're so excited to come together and worship God, and that's the horizontal, that we, we, we sit here and we sing and we pray and we listen and recite scripture, recite affirmations of faith, confess our sins. We do all of this uh, looking to our sides, looking in front of us and behind us and seeing that, that God has changed many people's hearts. And one day when we're in heaven and we're all with the Lord, we see him as he is, we're going to see untold numbers of people who, the right, the, those who've been made righteous through Christ, untold numbers of people praising God together. And what a wonderful day that will be. So this is just a little expression of that great day when we together, with all of God's people throughout the ages, will worship him. I hope our time in Genesis has, so far, has increased your awe and love of God. I hope that that has been the effect of our time so far because we know that all of Scripture ought to do that. And I would say there are a few places in Scripture that is, is more geared towards that than the very beginning as we consider how God brought everything into being out of nothing, how he created all things. So the prayer is that at this, by this point you, you, have a state of, you are in a state of awe and love of this God and that you desire to serve him. You know, one of the things we see God lifted up high and exalted is that it should drive us to some things. He's not just a beautiful painting to admire, but he is a God who, when we see him in his splendor and glory, he drives us towards certain things. He drives us towards holiness. He drives us towards service, drives us towards dying to ourselves. So I I pray that that has happened and will continue to happen for you as God presses in on you with his word as we go through Genesis. Yesterday, or uh, well yesterday, yeah, we had several couples come to our new members class. And one of the things that we do in our new members class is uh, talk about the vision of the church, that we go through the vision statement of Four Corners and the second point of our vision statement is centering on Christ. So building on exposition, centering on Christ, dying in community, serving on mission is the vision of Four Corners. And so the second point is centering on Christ. And one of the key texts that we refer to when we talk about our vision statement is 2 Corinthians 3.18 where we see that it is in our beholding the glory of the Lord, that is Christ, in our beholding of the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So one of the points we make is that when you see Christ high and lifted up, exalted in all of his glorious splendor, it has a sanctifying effect. So if you're asking the question this morning, how do I grow in the Christian life? I feel like I'm stagnant. What you need is singular. What you need is one thing, and that is to see Christ as the treasure he is. Because when you begin to see Christ as the treasure that he is, it by necessity sanctifies. It naturally transforms the heart, turns us away from little idols, little petty non-treasures, and turns us towards the God who is 
a treasure, the treasure. And one thing is very clear about Genesis 1. The glory of Christ is everywhere. We see that even at the very first chapter. You're thinking, well, hold on, the New Testament is about Christ, right? We get, we get Christ being born there at the beginning of Matthew. We get Christ, uh, the birth narrative at the beginning of Luke. We get the beginning of John talking about the Word becoming flesh and, and, and being there. But what about the Old Testament? I mean, isn't that before Christ? It is before the incarnation of Christ. But we see that Christ is eternal. And we see him here even in Genesis 1. Think about it for a moment. Christ is referred to in the New Testament as the Word. He is the Word who was with God. He is the Word through whom God created all things. And what do we see in Genesis 1? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, and God said, and God said repeatedly. We see God creating through his Word, his logos, his eternal wisdom, his eternal thought being expressed there and through whom all things are made. Christ is referred to in the New Testament as the light of the world. He's the light. Two times in the very first chapter of the Bible, we get this emphasis on light and day and night and darkness. Christ is the light. He's life. Christ is referred to throughout the Bible, as throughout the New Testament, as the life, the life of men, God's life in us. He's the word of life in 1 John. And here we have God creating life through him who is life. Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God, Paul says. And here we have, at the very first chapter of the Bible, God powerfully Working through his word, creating all things by his power out of nothing. He spoke everything into existence and made everything visible and invisible. So Christ is everywhere in the very first chapter of the Bible. And I haven't even mentioned, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, which we'll get to later. So the big question is this. Are you beholding and treasuring Christ? That's always the question. That's always the question you should ask yourself when we come together in worship on a Sunday together to worship God. That's always the question. That's always the question when you do your your quiet time with the Lord, when you spend your time in prayer and meditating on the scriptures. The question is always that. Are you beholding and treasuring Christ as you consider him through the window of Genesis chapter 1. We have spent much time seeing Christ as the great teacher in the Sermon on the Mount, and not just the teacher. We see there's so much about him, but we do see him opening up his mouth and teaching them, saying at the beginning of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew, chapter 5 of Matthew. So we've seen him as teacher in the Sermon on the Mount, and now we see him as creator in Genesis chapter 1, the great Lord Christ. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So every little thing that we could observe with our senses in the world was created by Christ, through Christ, and for his glory. That's an incredible thing when we consider that this Christ is our 
Redeemer. He's our Savior. So let me ask this question. Have you received your Creator as your Redeemer? Because here's the thing. He could be your Creator without being your Redeemer. What I mean is this, Christ created you, whether you like it or not, or believe it or not, he created you. He created all things. Have you received him as your savior, as the one who can make you, the one who alone can make you right with God, the one who alone can pay the penalty for your sins, the one who alone can stand righteous before God? One of the scriptures that we have, have memorized at our home, in our home comes from 1 Samuel, and it says, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? One man, one man is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, Christ. And only those who stand in him will withstand God's judgment. So have you accepted your creator as your redeemer in the gospel of John? Just after telling us in those opening verses that God made all things through his word, through Christ, we read in verses 12 and 13, to all who received him, the word through whom all things were made, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The question is this, have you become a child of God through this Christ? Have you been born again through this Christ? Don't sit through these sermons on Genesis and make it about anything other than Christ. Don't come to hear preaching and get into the word of God and put Christ off to the side as a side marginal thing. He's the center. Have you been saved by this Jesus Christ? That is ultimately the question. It's the most important question of life. A couple of weeks ago, we started looking at God's six days of creation. And first, we did a, a bit of a flyover. We went all the way from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 31. And we looked at three things, three strands that kind of go throughout the first chapter. We looked at God's word, God's order, and God's delight. And so it gave us an opportunity to see how all the days fit together. And to kind of tie in some of those main ideas that get repeated, those recurring ideas that we see throughout those days, and to gather those up, if you will, and reflect on them in particular. But then last week, we looked at the first three days in more detail, and we get the first three days of creation in verses 3 to 13. And today, we come to the last three days. So the title for the sermon this morning you'll see it up on the screen, is days four to six, fullness towards dominion. And this is part one. And the reason that it is part one is that it's just need to spend some time looking at the creation of man. That's not something really that you can just sort of sweep underneath uh, this larger topic. So we're looking at days four to six as a whole, but we're going to split that into two parts. Today we're going to look at everything up to the creation of man. So day four, day five, and the first part of day six. And then we get let us make man in our image in, in verse 26. And so we're going to stop before we get there and begin to treat that next week. 
So days one to three, formation towards production. What we have in the first three days of creation is God is forming spaces and spheres. And all of this culminates at the end of day three in a productive earth. So that's why we said last week, uh, the title for the sermon last week was Formation Towards Production. That in the first three days, the overarching thing that's happening in those first three days is God is forming the world. And particularly, he's forming time, he's forming space. He's separating out the various spaces. We have sky, we have water, seas, we have land. And then at the end of all of that, the end result of it, what it's all moving towards on day three is a productive, flourishing earth. An earth that is fertile, that is giving rise to vegetation. So formation towards production. And then days four to six, we have fullness towards dominion. Days four to six are about God filling up the spaces which he's made. It's incredible when you look at this structure that in the first three days, God forms the spaces and they're empty. They're still void as we go back to Genesis 1-2. They're formless, God forms them. They're void, God fills them. And in days four to six, he fills them up. And all of this, of course, culminating in a representative of God being placed on the earth who will have dominion over all of it. So we have fullness towards dominion. So please stand with me as we read God's word. We're going to read all of days 4 to 6 of verses 14 to 31 of chapter 1 of Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 14. This is the word of God. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 20. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. Verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And that's where we're going to stop today in terms of our study, but we're going to read on now to verse 31. So verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image 
after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made And behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You can be seated. What an incredible account. Even the smallest child can understand this, and the most educated scientist is baffled by it. This is the incredible nature of God's Word. We see it all throughout the Scriptures. Let's pray to God and ask for His help. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the creator. You are the the maker, the former, the fashioner of earth, of sky and sea, of planetary bodies and stars. You are the one who formed all matter and all heavenly creatures, angels of various kinds, various levels. You have made all things through your word. We praise you, Father, that you have made us. That in this brief moment in time, we exist. We live and move and have our being here now. God, we praise you that we experience so much of your good every day as we eat as we taste, as we smell, and we see, and we hear, and we love, and we feel, and we think. God, so many wondrous things you have given us in your creation. And Father, to think that we will feel and think and experience forever, either in hell or with you in heaven. Father, what a weighty thing it is that you put before us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. Father, help us not play lightly with such things or justify our lethargy and neglect and laziness and sloth and unbelief. Father, may we not do that. Would you help us? Would you awaken us to the truth of Christ that we might treasure him truly and follow him truly? We thank you that he is here present with us and yet also present here even in this first chapter as we see him gloriously displayed as the one through whom you made all things. God, make him great to us today. We see how our minds quickly leave him. Would that not be so today? Would we see him and would we love him and follow him and die with him? die to ourselves and follow him with a cross upon our backs 
that we might take hold of that crown of life which awaits those who live unto him. God, help us, we pray. We are needy, as Ken prayed earlier. We are so frail and in need of your spirit every hour, including this one. So would you come, Holy Spirit of God, you who hovered over the waters at the beginning, would you come now and hover over this place, hover over our hearts and change us, God, we ask. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So three things that we're going to consider this morning as we look at days four to six. And the first of those is the celestial creation, celestial or heavenly creation. Secondly, the biological boundaries. And then thirdly, the procreative power. Now, the second two, the biological boundaries and the procreative power, I will treat together at the end. So they kind of constitute really in terms of the presentation of, of this today, they'll constitute one point. But the celestial creation, the biological boundaries, and the procreative power, that's what we will spend our time looking at today. So let's look first at the celestial creation. When we come to God's creative work on day four, there are four basic questions, I think, that emerge from the text itself that help us to understand what's going on here on this day. What's going on in these verses? What is, what is God doing? How do we understand it? I think there are four questions that the text really forces us to ask. Why, what, where, and when? And by asking and answering these questions, we're able to penetrate what's going on here on day four. So first, why? And I think we get clarity on the why question in verses 14 and 15. These verses tell us that the celestial creation, the heavenly creation, here called lights or luminaries, have a threefold purpose. So verses 14 and 15 are very clear about why these things were made. And so we're told, number one, that they are to separate the day from the night. And number two, to be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And then number three, to give light upon the earth. And verse 16, to rule the day and the night. So that immediately raises a question in our minds. What do we do with uh, the first day of creation when God said, let there be light and there was light. How do we relate that to day four? Well, it seems to me that when we look at that first day that what we have created is a non-solar light. Some will want to argue that on day four, what actually happens is the appearance of the light of the sun. And so on day one, God creates the sun. That's the light. It's the sun. But then we get to day four, and what happens is the light begins to appear, and that's what's happening there. One of the problems with this view, though, first of all, this language of made, he made them, that we get on day four. But another problem with this is that earlier in the text, we already have had the language of appearing. Remember when the waters are gathered together into seas, and the land appears, right? So if we wanted, if, if the writer wanted to say something similar with regard to the sun, we would expect that he would say that, that the, the sun appeared just as the earth appeared, so too the sun appears here on day four. But that's not the language that we get. 
we get the language of God making these things on day four. So what we would say is that what we have here is a more permanent setup for light and the passage of time. We know from the very first day that there's already a sense of time. The light being created gives a sense of time because there's day and there's night. There's light and there's darkness. The passage of day to night, night to day is the passage of time. And so we have already the framework of time being present on day one. But it's here that God begins to fill that structure of time with permanent heavenly bodies, with regulating bodies that will be there permanently, at least until the new heavens and the new earth. God will put these there to regulate those things which have already been regulated since day one. So let me say this, there's no sense in which something new happens here with regard to the cycle of time. So I said last week, some have argued that, well, we really do day four because it talks about days and years. We really do have to say that 24-hour days are in view after day four, that day four, day five, and day six, sure, maybe 24-hour days, but days one, two, and three, I don't know about that because we don't have the sun and we understand the day by the sun. There's no sense in which there's a difference between days one, two, and three, and four, five, and six. The passage of time seems to be the same with the light source, the non-solar light source on day one functioning as the sun would function on day four. So it just continues with something more permanent. That's my point. So the why question. Now we move to the what question. I've already entered into this a little bit, but let's go a little deeper. The what question. Verse 16 says, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Well, now we see clearly what these bodies are. Before, they're simply lights or luminaries. Now we come to understand, as we look at them, a greater light to rule the day, a lesser light to rule the night, and specifically, explicitly, the stars. So now we know that what God does on day four is he makes the sun, the moon, and the stars. And it is interesting that he doesn't name the sun and the moon, but I'll comment on this a little bit later. I wanna, I wanna make a point about why it is that God doesn't say, Moses, when he writes Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't say, on day four, God made the sun. There is a Hebrew word for sun, by the way, and God made the moon. There is a Hebrew word for the moon, by the way, but it doesn't say that. It just says that he made the greater and the lesser light. We'll talk about that more in a moment. The sun is the star governing our solar system, as we know. It is the star around which Earth orbits. One orbit or revolution around the sun is a year. And so when it talks about the, the, the days and years and seasons and so forth being uh, differentiated by these heavenly bodies, we know from, from what we know today, astronomically, that that is the case with the sun. The Earth goes around the sun and one revolution around the sun is a year. One full rotation of the earth on its axis as it orbits around the sun is a day. So every day this, the earth spins in one entire revolution as it makes its way spinning every day for 365-ish days around the sun. One day, 
Going, going, going all the way until the end of the year. And one full revolution of the moon around the earth is used to measure a month. And so it's roughly 30 days or so that the moon will rotate around the earth. Isn't this incredible? That that is how we have the structures, the basic structures that we use. Month of day, month, year. And God here gives us a week through his creation. So we have a day, we have a week, we have a month, we have a year, all here in the first chapter of Genesis. It's incredible, I'll just a side note, that in every other ancient account of the origins of the universe, cosmogony is what that's called, every other ancient account, ancient account of the origins of the universe, it's some ridiculous story about God slicing each other up and arguing and sort of being in different parts and this God is this thing and stretched out and so forth. Here we have something that even was the basis for many of the earliest scientists in the period of the Enlightenment, that men such as Sir Isaac Newton looked at the Bible as a credible, truthful account of the universe in which we live, of the world. You could not do that with an ancient Mesopotamian myth or an ancient Egyptian myth or Sumerian or Canaanite myth. They're ridiculous stories about gods being chopped up, taking different parts of the cosmos. Here we have something that is radically different. I was talking with a, a, a real, a, as he calls himself, a magician this week, someone who is sort of a warlock magician type of uh, a guy, figure, and, and he, uh, we were talking a little bit about the gospel, and he was talking about how he invokes uh, Osiris and other pagan deities to do his magic and so forth. And Jehovah, Yahweh, is one of those whom he invokes to, to do his magic. And he, he was, we were talking a little bit about Hebrew and the Hebrews, we were talking about the Jews and the Old Testament. And one of the things that we discussed was the fact that the, the creation account in Genesis is so distinct from all these other creation accounts, beginning accounts. And another thing is that the God of the Hebrews is, is very abstract in the way he's understood in relationship to the gods of the ancient world. So the gods of the ancient world were understood in very human ways, even beastly ways. And they're sleeping with one another, doing all kinds of crazy things. But the God of the Hebrews reveals himself as, I am who I am. What an amazing expression of the notion of deity in that kind of context. So here we have, thousands of years ago, this creation account and this glorious God. So going back to the sun, the moon, and the stars, they give us, the sun and the moon, give us the month and the day and the year. One star, the sun, lights up the day. And its reflection off of the moon in conjunction with the stars light up the night. And these celestial bodies have been used throughout human history for various forms of navigation. So they're signs. They act as navigational signs. Should not be used for astrological signs to determine the future and so forth, which many ancient people did as well. But they direct us towards things. And in fact, when God destroys the world one day, when, when the day of the Lord comes, when Christ returns, there will be astronomical phenomena, signs from the heavens that demonstrate that these Things are happening. Jesus is clear about that towards the end of Matthew's gospel. 
We find that throughout the scriptures and Joel and other places that the heavens themselves will declare that human history is coming to a close. Uh, this past week, last week, last Monday, we had our first trail life. And uh, that was exciting, so let me just put a little plug in. Any of you dads who have sons, please bring them to this. This is just going to be an incredible ministry. Craig Stephan did an amazing job, and I mean that. He really did. I mean, it was just so uh, extensive, and, and he was just so good at communicating with the kids. And we went out, and I think Adam Lewis, too, for teaching us a lot about how to make a fire uh, in, in the right kind of way with the right kind of material, and so it doesn't take an hour to do it. And... Uh, and so it was just, it was a good time. But, but one of the things that Craig mentioned was that the next time, I think it's the next time, you correct me on this after the service if I'm wrong, Craig, but um, the next time we get together for that, we're going to talk about how we can sort of navigate using the stars, you know, how, how astronomy helps us to navigate and move about. Well, all of that goes back to Genesis chapter 1 as we read it here. Oxford mathematician John Lennox in his book, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God, comments on the evidence for design that we see in the fine-tuning of the universe. So as we consider the evidence that there's a designer, and as we consider the evidence that the universe is finely tuned perfectly for human life, listen to what he says on that regarding the sun. He writes, the distance from the earth to the sun must be just right. Too near and water would evaporate. Too far and the earth would be too cold for life. A change of only 2% or so and all life would cease. And one of the things we ask is why all these other planets exist. What if they exist just simply to show us how it is that we have life here on earth? That the ones that are closer, no life. The ones that are further away, no life. This one, life. Because God placed it here perfectly. We wouldn't know that if there weren't other bodies out there placed differently, which don't have what we have here on earth. It is true that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What more can we say? To not believe in God, the Bible tells us, is a spiritual issue, not an intellectual issue. So we've asked the question, why? We've asked the question, what? Now we come to the question, where? So look at verse 17. Verse 17, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens. This is what we call phenomenological language. What does that mean? Well, it means that the celestial bodies are described from the vantage point of the observer on earth. Where, where are these things? I mean, ask any person, and, and they'll tell you, any person living for thousands of years, even today we say this, use this language, where's the sun? It's in the sky. Well, the sun is not in the atmosphere of the earth where the clouds are, but it appears to be that. So does the moon, and so does the stars. They are set there in the sky for us. This is phenomenological language. It is language that describes the phenomena as it is seen, just as when Joshua and the armies of Israel are fighting and the sun stood still. We know the sun doesn't go around the earth. 
that the earth goes around the sun. So whatever happened there, it was phenomenological language. The sun did not move from its place as one would observe. As Calvin says, he is not explaining the heavens to us, but is describing what is before our eyes. And Calvin is clear. We must go to astronomy in order to understand what is going out there specifically, the mechanisms at work in the planets. But here we have before us what is happening before our eyes. And isn't isn't it amazing that God would explain creation in such a way that a person living today After the scientific revolution, in the midst of of all that we know about the universe, would be able to understand this just as well as any person in any society, in any corner of the earth throughout history. Why? Because God doesn't explain it in astronomical terms. He explains it in phenomenological terms. He tells us what it appears like. There it is. The stars, the sun, the moon are where? In the sky. The placement of these heavenly bodies in the sky also gives us a clue as to why the universe appears to be so old. We know that with some of the stars we see, this is a fact, with some of the stars that we see, it would take millions of years for the light of those stars to even reach the earth, right? Some of those stars are that far away from earth. So the logic goes. If we can see those stars... The earth must be at least as old as it takes for the light to get from that star to the earth. So the logic goes. So how do we see that light? That's the big question. Some say, well, this is clear evidence for for an old earth. Whatever we're going to do with Genesis, it's an old earth because we know that that's the case. That's what we have before us. Billions of years. But I think the words, God set them in the expanse of the heavens, give us a clue. And here's what I mean. These words tell us that God made these bodies and immediately made them visible in the night's sky. You see, you can go now and see how long it takes for light to travel. And you can extract from the present, going back just according to a very naturalistic, physicalistic, materialistic worldview And you have to go all the way back, extracting back. And of course, if that's merely what you have, if that's your presupposition, if that's your religion, if that's your overarching philosophy, then of course, you have to go all the way back to millions and millions and billions and billions of years. But what we have here is a God who can take a star millions of light years away and immediately put its light in view of the earth. You see, we don't have a God who simply works within the confines as he creates, within the confines of natural processes. We have a God who miraculously created all things out of nothing, just as he raised up his son from the dead. The light from a distant star would take millions of years to reach us, but those stars weren't left to themselves. Who is to say, and who could say, who was there, that God did not make a star millions of light years away and immediately bring that light to the earth? That is what God does. Much like Adam was made mature, 
just as the astronomer would go and look at that and analyze that evidence and naturalistically go all the way back to a big bang, go all the way back, have to take it back, 4.5 billion years for the earth, 13.7 billion years for the universe, so too a biologist inspecting Adam in the garden would conclude he were 20 or 25 years old or so, right? How old was he? Five minutes, a day, not 20 years, 25 years. He had just been made. So that is the question of where, and I think it gives us a clue to help answer the question about the age of the universe and the earth. Now we come finally to the question of when. It's important that we consider why God would make the sun, moon, and stars on day four. Why didn't he just do this at the very beginning? Why would God wait until day four to make the sun, the moon, and the stars? I think we get a hint of the answer at this in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 19. It says this, and beware, this is Moses, the one who wrote Genesis to the Israelites. This is him talking to the Israelites. This is what he says. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heavens. Now here's what's fascinating about this. Worship of the heavenly bodies, particularly the stars, the sun, and the moon, were pervasive in the ancient world. I mean, they worshiped everything, but the sun and the moon and the stars in particular. And I think there's a reason for that, because why did God make the sun and the moon? To rule over the day, to rule over the night. So there's a sense in which if you're a pagan, unbeliever with a wicked heart since Adam, you're going to look around and find the coolest thing that you can find, the most amazing thing. What rules the day and night? And you look up and you see this big ball of light. And that's definitely got to be the most important thing around here. And so the sun and the moon are widely worshipped a quote here from a commentator, the Babylonians have their trinity of stars, Sin, Shamash, and Ishtar, the, and Egypt has Nut, Shu, and Geb with the preeminent astral deity, the sun god Ra. The ancient people loved the moon and the stars and the sun, and they bowed down before them. So by his delay in creating them, God communicates that he is preeminent, not the heavenly bodies. He waits intentionally, I think, to create the sun, the moon, and the stars to show that these things are really just mere creation. Everything was moving along just fine before they were made. Days one, day two, day three, moving along fine before the sun, the moon, and the stars. And had God chosen not to create them, it would still be moving along just fine according to his purpose. Also, the sun and the moon are not named explicitly, as I mentioned before. Why? Because Moses wants to direct them away from worshiping these things to see that they are simply creatures of God. The sun, the moon, and the stars are not to be worshiped. And this is another reason why the longest account that we get aside from day six is day four. You'll notice this goes from verses 14 to 19. What that tells us is that Moses wants to be very clear. This is how those amazing things up there came to be. Let me be very clear with you so you don't bow down idolatrously and worship them. So let's take a step back 
and consider some of the implications of day four for us. So we've explored a little bit about this day of creation. What what does this mean for us? What are some of the implications? Well, first, there is always a temptation to worship what puts us in a state of awe. So let me ask you this question. What is the sun or moon for you? What is it that you look around in your life and it brings you to this state of awe? It elevates you and you really grab hold of it and you love it and it's most important to you. The truth is that there are suns and moons and stars in all of our hearts. Psalm 19 is the answer. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. What that tells us is why do these things even exist? They always point us to God. Our kids, not idols. They point us to God. Our spouse, not an idol. He or she points us to God. All the wonderful things that we have in our lives, that we rejoice in or are excited about, all of these things, not God's. They point us to the true God. Second, what should our response be to the heavens? I think Psalm 8 tells us, verses 3 and 4, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. And here's what he says. I'm looking at them. I'm taking them in. This is the question that comes to his mind. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but this has happened to me a lot. Maybe it hasn't happened to you, but there have been times in my life where I was really just stressed out. You know, there's some things going on and and I'm just, I have a lot on my mind and I feel kind of defeated and I'm just anxious and I'm praying and I'm struggling and I'm working through it. And frequently, frequently it will happen that as I'm doing that, God will just direct my eyes up to the, to, the, to the sky at night. And there in the sky, I will see all of these incredible stars. And all of a sudden, immediately, my little life, and, and within the, the category of my little life, all my little problems become very tiny and very insignificant just in that moment. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. We look very small when we look up there. It humbles us. And it puts our little lives in the right perspective. But it also tells us, as it goes on to say, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That despite the fact that we are a tiny speck on a tiny speck planet in a tiny speck solar system with a tiny speck sun, despite that, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, cares for us. He sees every facet of our lives, every moment of our day. He's always present, small yet immeasurably valued by God. A third implication that we can draw out of day four is that the creation of regulating bodies that govern time show us that God cares about the structure, order, and management of our lives. This came up in our gospel community group this week. We talked about the fact that God is a God of order. And I don't know if you've ever felt this in your life, but we're not happy when we're disordered. It doesn't matter what type A, type B, type Z. It doesn't matter what kind of type of person we say we are, we see from scripture that God is a God of order, which means that where chaos and disorder govern a life that is not going to be a flourishing, wise, happy life. And I think we see this even as God creates for us time structures. He gives us days. He gives us months. He gives us years. He gives us a work week that we might have this sense of order and structure in our lives. 
So as we finish this morning, as we move towards the end, I want to treat these last two points together, as I said before, because a lot of what we'll talk about when we talk about the creation of man will be, uh, will, will, will be closely related to what I'm going to say today. So let's move to the second and third point, the biological boundaries and the procreative power. Look at verses 20 to 25. Verses 20 to 25. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So here we have God's creation of living creatures to fill the earth. They are created and then they are enabled with God's blessing to reproduce. And so you notice in verse 22, it says, And God blessed them, saying, God's blessing is accompanied by an empowering and enabling to reproduce. He blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth or sorry, fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And God will go on to tell Adam later that he is to have dominion over all the fish of the sea, over all the birds of the heavens, and over all of the creatures on the land. And one of the most interesting features of God's account of how life came to be is the extent to which he divides the different types of creatures. So we're talking here about the biological boundaries. He sets up, God, this is very important for understanding how we're going to put together what we find in the Bible and what prevails in terms of the origin myth that we're being fed in our culture. God sets up here biological boundaries. And there are layers of these boundaries. It's very interesting as we look, even at this very bare bones account that we have here. So here's what I mean. The first layer or the first layer of boundary that we see is a distinction between plant life and animal life. Many have commented on the fact that in the mind of the Hebrews, plants did not really constitute life as such. So we're very much in the mindset, especially since the 1960s, <laughs> that plants and animals are just sort of right there together. Uh, that, that there really is no distinction. But what we have in the Hebrew mindset is very much a distinction between plant life, so-called, and life after that, life that's created after that. One indicator of this is the use of the word nephesh in verse 20 to denote creatures that are living. It denotes soulish life, creaturely life, life that moves and have, has its being. And categorically, it sets animals apart from vegetation. We see this also in verse 30, where all the beasts are given, all the animals of the earth are given the plants to eat. And what that tells us is, one is life and one is food. One is life and one is food. In the Hebrew mind, there is a radical distinction between plants and animals. 
And I think one of the implications of this is that plant death before the fall, as some theologians and commentators will want to cite, plant death before the fall cannot really be used to argue, see, there was death before the fall. Of course there was death before the fall. Plants are dying. That's, that's, that's a silly argument. There seems to be very clearly a distinction between plants and animals. That is grasping for straws is what I think that form of argumentation is. A second distinction that we have in addition to this distinction between plant life so-called and living creatures, that is animals, the second distinction that we have is between sea air, and land creatures. And in 121, we have among those sea creatures the great sea creature mentioned, associated in the Bible with Leviathan. I won't get into what Leviathan is, but this is uh, described in the Bible as this incredible, massive, powerful, frightening sea creature. And so as uh, we talked about, here, here's the thing. If we find, as Christians, if we find bones of an animal in the earth and they are land dwelling, they were made on day six. If we find bones in the fossil record, or fossils, or if we find bones in the earth, whatever it is we find, and they were sea creatures, they were made here on day five. Which means that we should understand such creatures, I think, as Leviathan and Behemoth mentioned in Job as being dinosaur-like creatures, perhaps that we find described throughout ancient cultures all over the world, drawn on cave walls, these dinosaur-like creatures. God looks at Job and says, Job, have you considered behemoth? And behemoth is this massive creature with a tail that moves like a cedar, and the waters move along. It cannot be moved. But the point I want to make here is that the sea creature, the great Leviathan, is nothing to God. It's just a creature. Ancient cultures worshiped this, this notion of a sea creature. They bowed down to this creature. They were afraid of this creature. And here we have, I think, the Lord telling us nothing but a creature, just a sea creature. A third distinction that we have focusing in on the land where humans will dwell are cattle or livestock, creeping things, and beasts, or wild animals. There's a reason why uh, Moses goes straight to land animals, because that's the most relevant for human beings. We have birds, we have birds in the sky, we have sea creatures, but now we go to another distinction within land animals, and that distinction is between cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the field. And then there's a fourth distinction, kinds within each major category. So here's the main idea I want you to get before we close this morning. What is the implication of all of these biological boundaries that we have here between plants and animals, between animals in various spheres, between the animals within the various spheres, and then underneath those animals, the various kinds that exist there? What do we do with all of this? One of the implications, I think, is that the Darwinian notion of universal common descent, that all of life ultimately goes back together to the beginning, that the boundaries between various groups of life, whatever you want to call them, are fluid. They're not set as we have here clearly in Genesis. The implication is that this worldview, this system of thought, 
is contrary to the biblical account and must be seen as such. John Frame, a major Reformed theologian, writes this. The frequent repetition of according to their kinds and according to its kind indicates that there are divinely imposed limitations on what can result from reproduction. I do not know how broadly these kinds should be construed or how they relate to modern biological classifications such as family, genus, and species. But whatever a kind is, These passages evidently imply that plants and animals of one kind do not produce plants or animals of another. But that is what must happen if the story of evolution is to be true. And I want to give you this, I want to emphasize, I want to highlight this word. Story. Story. Because that's precisely what it is. Oh, how arrogant we are as modern man to think that we are any different than those pagans of old. How arrogant we are to think that we have not ourselves created another origin myth. Polished, intellectually savvy, filling the textbooks and filling the universities, the highest levels of intellectual thought and research throughout the world, and yet it is an origin myth. And we, the people of God, are like the Israelites. We stand in the middle of it, just as Israel stood in the middle of it, from every direction. And the question is, will we be faithful to our God? It's his story, or it is an origin myth created by modern man. It saddens me, and I think it is a true shame That there are many Christians out there who are more apt, hear this, more apt to call Genesis myth than they are to say that all of this construction of the origin of the world, the origin of life, is a myth. The fear of man, as I said last week, is powerful. We as Christians fear God, not man. What is our final response? Psalm 104, 24 to 25, we cry out with the psalmist, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. O Lord, how manifold are your works. And it is this eternal wisdom of God, hear this as we close, it is this eternal wisdom of God through whom he made innumerable creatures, both small and great, who for our sake and our salvation became man and died on a cross to save you from your sins. Will you trust him? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you present it to us with such clarity. And God, we thank you that you call us back to truth time and time again as we open it. 
Father, would our minds be conformed to Christ and not to the spirit of this age? Would our minds not be conformed to this world, but would we be transformed by the renewal of our minds that by testing we may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, that we might live as light in a dark world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.